Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. I'm joined today by Peter Flavel, the Chief Executive of Coots, the private bank and wealth manager that describes its clients as trailblazers and pioneers, the disruptors and challengers who help to shape the fabric of UK society. And alongside that spirit of challenge sits over three centuries of tradition, which provide a unique perspective on the character of success and the springboard for Peter's drive to deliver what he's described as more than a bank. Peter, welcome to Changemakers. Michael, it's a, it's a joy and privilege to be here talking with you. We do a lot together, so I'm very pleased to be here. I was going to say, it's not very often I get to say I'm interviewing the boss, but I think I genuinely am today because obviously I, I, I work with you in, in the entrepreneurs team, but it's great to welcome you in your guise as chief exec of Coots. And I was actually looking back on your story and just thinking that I'm interviewing somebody who works in banking, but I could have also been interviewing a barrister, a hockey player. I mean, a real sort of series of potential career routes, Peter. So what gets you? What gets you to today, do you think? I've always enjoyed change. And so you're, the heading of, of change makers is, is an interesting one. And in my career, Michael, every every few years, every several years, someone's come along and, and asked me, would you like to do, do this? And uh, Coots is one of those. I mean, I've been watching mm. Coots as a, as a young man, you know, 30, over 30 years ago. I mean, everyone in banking knows Coots. I mean, I think it's the best private banking brand in the world. I'd be a bit biased about that, but I do. And I was down in, in Singapore. We'd been living in Asia for 17 years. And then how did I get to Asia? Well, I was working for an Australian bank and I met um, now Lord Davies, Mervyn Davies, who sat me back in, the, in my chair and said, you know nothing about the world, son. If you want to become an international banker, come up to Singapore. And I thought I knew a bit about banking, but I didn't. So I really enjoyed my time in Asia with, with Stan Chart and then, and then JP Morgan came yeah. up. Um, I never thought I'd be working for an American bank. And American banks and English bank, British banks are different, let me tell you. They're different. And so I really enjoyed my time at JP Morgan. And then I was really happy there. And I met Alison Rose, who's now our boss at NatWest. And she sold me on, on why I needed to join Coots. We'll go into some of those cultural differences a bit later on. But I was reading that when you actually were in, in your law career, that when you had one of your first big wins, that one of the partners said to you that uh, it doesn't get any better than this. Is that sense of mountains to climb an important part of your temperament, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I, I can still remember that moment. I I worked really hard on this case for 18 months. An arbitration made a big win. And Mr. Sharkey, all the partners were Mr. You couldn't call them by their first name. I said, on Friday, we'll go out for a few drinks, Peter. So we went out for a few drinks. Everyone's high-fiving and Peter, well done. And then Mr. Sharkey takes me aside, puts his arm around my shoulder and says, Peter, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. And I thought, oh, dear. So I came in on Monday, came in on Monday and said, John, not Mr. Sharkey, I'm gone. I'm out of here. So every, every time I've been faced with a path in the road, the one that was safer, and the one that looked more interesting, I've taken the more interesting one. Mm. As you get older, you realise it was the riskier one as well. But at the time, I found it the more interesting one. Mm. Let's just, just go into the hockey for a second, because, I mean, you could have also been a competitive sports player. And instead, you've coached men's and women's teams at, at, at a really high level. Did, did sport give you a perspective, do you think? Absolutely. You, you learned that, particularly in hockey, where... When you play it at a decent level, you're only as good as your weakest player because if you play a decent team, they work out what the weakest link is. And then you learn that you can play really well and, and work really hard and you can still lose. Mm. And so the whole idea of, of working together as a team, and I was quite good as a junior, but I hurt my knee, my knees. 
And so I turned, I could have just said, look, I move away. But I turned to coaching initially juniors and then women and, and then men. And, and I, I realized quite obviously, but I realized the way in which you coach has to be so individualized to individual people, but different teams. And actually, one of my sort of formulative management exercises has really been to understand the different ways that you coach people. And that goes right back to those hockey days when I was in my early 20s. Mm. I, I read a great Michael Jordan quote when I was thinking about your hockey days. He said, practice like you've never won, play like you've never lost. I mean, is that, a, I mean, that, that feels like it's relevant for business as it does for sport, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. I, and you learn that you, you have losses. Like it's not about winning every, every time. And you learn that it's all about preparation. And, and you can't control the weather, but you can train when it's wet and therefore you can play very well in the, in the wet. So you, you train to, to play in whatever weather there is and that's an exact analogy for business. Now, you brought a change of weather in, in, um, in 2016 when you became CEO of Coots. I remember it very well indeed. And I guess, you know, it'd be good to get your perspective of taking the helm of a British banking icon next year, 330 years in the making you've described it as more than a bank tell us what that means i guess to you and what that means for coots we're named after thomas coots and it was said of him that he was a man of singular clear judgment with a warm and compassionate heart and that to me is the ethos around what more than a bank means and when you're in a bank with 330 years like australia's like 100 and a bit you know you go golly and in my first week, uh, the Duke, His Grace, the Duke of Richmond, rang me up and invited me to lunch. I'd never been to an estate before. So we're driving into Goodwood Estate, and I'm thinking, oh, my Downton Abbey, Brideshead Revisited. And then we come up to the house, and there's Charles, and there's the butler, and there's the Dalmatians. <laughs> I'm going, I wonder what it's like to meet, because he was an earl, an earl. And he says, come on, Pete, let's jump in the, in the car. So we jump in his convertible roller. And we're driving around the estate, the aerodrome, the hotel, the golf course, the racetrack, you know, the, the, the farm, the, the Rolls-Royce factory. And I'm just like, how could you not be blown away by that? And then we're sitting in his, the family 300-year dining room. The, the cutlery's got the family emblem on it. And he's telling me about the Festival of Speed. And then I look out the window and they're, they're establishing this art installation for the Festival of Speed, which was on the next weekend, which was this big statuesque thing with seven vintage cars, three stories up. And I sat back and thought, well, this is Coots. We want to be nurture and nourish our heritage, be the best of British, but we need to be modern, relevant and contemporary today. And, mm. and I often talk about Buddhist, you've heard me talk about Buddhist state a lot. I think it's the best of British, but it's got this contemporary aspect to it and it's a bit of fun as well. So I do think also in Coots, we are trying to have a bit of fun from time to time as well. Yeah, well, I, I I can attest to that. I mean, I think I think also is you know there's no doubt that you respected the traditions, but I think you know there was there was a Times profile of you that talked about propelling Coots into a digital future and a more entrepreneurial future, one where I guess the dynamics of wealth have changed. I mean, that that's been something that has clearly excited you and been quite a mission in terms of not only looking at the past, but actually driving forward to the future. So again, early on, I went to a 30% club dinner, a cocktail party at, the, at MI6, and the Director General introduced the, the session. And he said, look, we need to have 
a diverse workforce because it's the right thing to do. Right thing to do. But we also need a diverse workforce because the sources of threat to the country are coming from so many different and varied ways. I can no longer just hire public school boys and train them up. And I thought, well, that's us. Like the sources of wealth are coming from so many different areas. I can no longer rely on our traditional bankers. We need to have bankers from different walks of life in order to serve the different forms of wealth that are being being created. So we've made a deliberate decision to get into things like interactive entertainment, you know, gaming. You know, the amount of wealth that's being created there, Michael, is 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 startling actually. Mm. I mean, when you're trying to get ahead of something like that, you know, you're looking at gamers being the future, but you're working in an institution that's had a 330-year track record. I mean, have you found the process of change carrying the culture with you? Has that been an easy or difficult job, do you think, in terms of in terms of making that transition? Initially, it was relatively easy because you remember that five or six years ago, I was brought in as an outsider, very different, for very good reason. We needed a bit of a shake-up. And so there was a degree of forced change. We had to get the place back to where it needed to be. So amount of the change for the first year or so was stuff that other people told us we needed to do. And then I said, well, come on, we want to be the best private bank in the UK. I don't want to be market leading or first. I want to be the best. Mm. And when you go into the into it with the mindset of being the best, of course, you can't be best at everything. But the mindset of being, being the best. And so we set these targets around digital, around new clients, entrepreneurs, a whole lot of stuff that people went, oh, my. But bought into it. But then after about a year, people were saying to me, Peter, you know, when's the change going to stop? I said, no, 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 that's not how it works. <laughs> it's hardly started. <laughs> when, when you want to be the best, you're con- going to continue to change and continue to evolve. So if you think we've had enough change, you've not seen mm. anything yet. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point because it, it strikes me that how you define the best has also changed because, you know, yeah. you're right off the back of successful accreditation as a B corporation. I mean, it's worth talking about that because, of course, that also is a new kind of hallmark, a new milestone of what success means in 2021. Yeah. If I can talk about ESG first, because that leads into to B Corp, Michael. So, of course, we're an investment house, banking, lending and investments. And I've been brought in to make sure we're doing the third one as well as the, the, first, the first two. So when we thought about ESG for investments, we asked ourselves, should we have a new set of green funds that are green funds against our, our existing funds? Or should all our funds have ESG filters? And we said, well, all of our funds should have ESG filters because if you have one set of funds that's not and one that is, what does that say about the ones that are, that are not? So we're on that journey and everything has, all the funds have ESG filters. And the good thing is we can get the same or better risk-adjusted risk returns investing in this way. So that was the investments. Then we said, okay, what about ourselves? How do we measure our own operations? Now, we knew about B Corp, but B Corp's usually about small organisations and organisations that are green in themselves, like recycling businesses. And banks, mm. you know, aren't all that green by definition. So we looked at it and thought, oh, this is going to be tough. And then we thought, no, actually, we can do this. So a couple of years it's taken us to get B Corp status. And we're really proud. And you'll see up on the on the decal on the window at 440, all the other B Corps that have decided to put their logo up there against ours. So we're pretty pleased about that. And we've done that because it's the right thing for us and the way in which we want to run the business. But the real reason is that we bank 20,000 successful and influential entrepreneurs in the UK. Wouldn't it be wonderful for the majority of them to say, actually, Peter, 
that's a good idea. We'd like to join you on the journey mm. of becoming and, a B Corp. And that's a very interesting distinction, isn't it? Because I suppose in the past, the role of, of wealth managers and specifically in, and banks more generally is it's almost like, well, we'll come up behind whatever it is you're doing. Actually, you know, with this, with this B Corp accreditation, you're the first major financial services institution to do it. But I suppose you're also signaling the change about how business itself needs to become more responsible, more sustainable, more contemporary in its attitudes? Look, two, two things. First of all, very good client of mine, ours, um, rings me up after B Corp. Dave B Corp, we're all excited. Peter, I need to talk to you. What the heck are you doing? You've got no role to play in the environment. This is stupid. Just get back to being a great bank. And I go, I won't say his, his, his name. We had, a, we had a fervent discussion. Let's, let's say I didn't sway him. He didn't sway me. Uh, he's still a client. I haven't changed his mind yet. So we've still got a group of clients that are looking at us going, what's all this about? But government, the second point is government with the, the election cycle of four years is not going to solve this problem. This is a systemic problem. We're mm. all going to have to solve it. And business and entrepreneurs in particular, and entrepreneurs in particular because they can move so fast, right? They're used to change because if they don't change, they go out of business. And so the smart entrepreneurs are working out, actually, this is going to be smart business as well as the right thing to do. Mm. But, you know, there is this, this idea of, of kind of like money following the ideas that actually where things go is where finance wants to sort of back. And, of course, you know, you via NatWest Group, you're sponsoring COP26. There's a big focus on the environment, I guess, you know, your own membership of B corporations also suggests sort of companies you want to hang out with. I mean, do you get a sense that there is a, a moment now where business more generally just needs to wake up and smell the coffee about what the new rules of the game might well be? Yes, fundamentally. And what I'm a little worried about is, so this week, one of the joys of my job is the people I get to meet. So this week we had an event, Zoom event with the Royal Highness uh, Princess uh, Royal and Bernard Looney from BP it was all about the sustainability agenda uh, at BP. And you can say, look, BP and Shell, energy companies, they're the problem. And you go, well, no, they're the solution. And business needs to recognise that actually these big companies have a role to play in getting us to where we need to be. We're also a member of the Sustainable Markets Initiative led by um, the Prince of Wales, and we signed up to the Terra Carta as well. Mm. And what you know, Prince of Wales is, is, is a forward thinker. And what he's doing here is he's, I'm on the financial services one, but he's got all the aviation companies together. He's got all the shipping companies together. He's got all the asset managers together on different roundtables. So explain to us what the Terra Carta is. It's, it's, a, it's a buy-in, it's a sign-up by business, is it? In terms it's of- a sign-up by business to say, how are you going to run the business? And you're going to run the business for all stakeholders and make sure that you adhere to whatever targets you set yourself towards net zero. We can't set one target for everyone for net zero, but have a challenging target and and go for it because it can't be greenwashing. Mm, I mean, I interviewed the movie producer, Richard Curtis, and and he said this. He said that, you know, finance has helped create the problem, but it also has the power to be the solution. I mean, it seems to me that that you've bought into that. So I suppose the question is, does that make you you know, a financial services outlier, or do you think actually this is part of a general repositioning, rethinking in terms of the role of of finance and the world in which we live? I do. It is the direction of travel. There are early adopters, and some of the biggest banks globally are early adopters. Not everyone's there. There will be some 
over the next few years that we'll see an opportunity not to play and then to finance things that other people wouldn't finance. But what I do think is going to happen is the cost of capital is going to go up for those activities that shouldn't be funded, like tar sands and all those sorts of things. Mm. Let's talk a bit about the kind of evolving culture. We've talked a bit about that. I'm presuming that people feel good about, about being a B corporation. I mean, let's talk about something that may well have been very difficult. You know, if we cast our minds back 18 months or so, March 2020, you go from being a business which is all about people contact to being a business which overnight has to be one about Zoom and about actually working remotely. How difficult was the pandemic for Coots in terms of doing business and keeping business going? Well, no one's contingency plan had a scenario in in where everyone was working from home and we were like that as well. And indeed, the regulator prior to the pandemic said there were various things that had to be done in the office. So they had to change their position as well. So we we, motiva- we mobilised very quickly and got everyone working from home within a week, which is extraordinary when you, mm. when you think about it. And then you ask yourself, if you can do that all in the matter of a couple of weeks, why is it some things take you a year in well, normal well, times well, I was gonna to get, get so done? If, so if I could just stop you for one second, because, you know, at the time when this was being mooted, I mean, many city chiefs just said it can't be done. The security the sheer level of complexity, the requirement to keep teams together, but then you had to do it. What did you learn about yourself when you're faced with the hat to moment? What you learned about yourself is that if you focus your efforts entirely on something and don't get distracted by other issues, you can virtually do anything. Mm. It was extraordinary. I mean, we, we created products in a week. That was just unimaginable prior to COVID. So you then go and ask the people that do that for me, how, like, how does this work? And they said, it's all we did. It's all we did now, 24 hours a day. So you've got to be realistic. You can't do that in normal times. But we do need to reflect on why we could move so so quickly. But then, as you said, we moved to this Zoom thing that sucks the energy uh, out of you every, every day. Not today, and Peter. That's not a, today, we're, doing, no, we're doing great. <laughs> and you know, our efficiency is... And productivity is substantially up year on year. And so we've learned to use video. But face-to-face is still really important. Zoom doesn't work for everything. And some of the training that we do is, by its nature, osmosis. It's mm. younger people observing more mature people in practice. And I suppose a lot of people say that the pandemic is is the tee-up for a major change in the way that we're going to work, the way we're going to sort of interact with each other, that it speaks, you know, it's accelerated, I guess, a lot of issues that were already coming. How how do you think it's going to change you and your team? Well, it has accelerated. And look, we've had FaceTime for 15 years and we haven't used video. I haven't run my mum in Australia on FaceTime for 15 years and now I use Zoom, right? So how does that that work? So we've we've become used to, to video We've recognised, particularly in London, the opportunity cost of commuting, uh, which I think is a higher relative cost to most places in in the world. So those things have changed. Mike, what I'm mindful of, though, is we were living in Singapore during SARS. Now, not exactly uh, analogous, but two years after SARS, everything went back to normal. Mm. So I'm a little hesitant, too, in calling it that everything's changed forever I think we've got some recency bias going on right. here. But there, I, I guess there might be a, a new normal in, in the sense that I don't know how you're feeling about these debates, about the way people congregate, the way people work. But I suppose in, in these great moments in time, 
they are a jolt, aren't they, in terms of the way people think. They they provide a window of opportunity to, to think and do things differently. I mean, does does that embolden you as a as a definite change maker CEO in terms of thinking actually there's opportunity now? I mean, I hope I had one gift, uh, one guest who described it as a brutal gift. I mean, is there is there something here in terms of an opportunity to do things differently for you, do you think? Oh, absolutely. So we have this wonderful service, Clicks 24. 24-7 telephony, 98% customer satisfaction. That all had to be done in the office. Now, that means you're running two or three shifts a day to cover the evening, you know, over, overnight. And I worry about staff being on the tube late at night, etc. We can do that from home now. The other thing mm-hmm. we can do is we have a peak in the middle of the day. So someone that's a homemaker can say, look, I want to take the kids to school and be there from them in the afternoon. I can give you three hours or four hours in the middle of the day, and we can we can do that now. We couldn't have done that before. So I'm not sure it's a brutal jolt, but it certainly opened the eyes up to things that we could never contemplate previously. Mm. I was reading that you first started visiting the UK in the in the 1980s. You will have seen it go through some of its biggest decades of change. What do you make of it as a place for an ambitious person to to grow their career compared to the other places in the world that you worked? So I'm an optimist at at heart. I do remember being quite pleased in the Thatcher years that, that suddenly um, there were decent restaurants in, in London, some of them from Aussie chefs, by, by the way. Um, and now, of course, uh, there's fantastic restaurants all across the UK. I think London has always been a world-leading city. It's a city that's always welcomed immigrants. So I think we've got to get our head around the fact that that's a part of what London is. The fact we've got this you know, shortage of lorry drivers and, and trades people, et cetera, is we need to get our heads around that. And you'd expect me to say the Aussie point system, we need 50,000 lorry drivers. That's actually a pretty easy thing to fix. So I do think that having made the decision around Brexit, let's not go there. Having made that decision, Britain now needs to look out to the rest of the world, including Europe, starting to, starting to do that. And I do think it is a great place for business to grow and a great place for entrepreneurs mm. We need to make sure, as Oxford and Cambridge and other universities are doing, that we get the, the, the smarts from the universities and businesses working together. You know, the Americans probably do that better than us still today. I think we can do that. We can do that better. And other places in Asia that I've lived in, you know, have, have their challenges. So let's hope mm. Hong Kong can come through its, its, present, its present situation. I mean, you've spoken in the past about, the need to champion and celebrate the things that make us world-class. Do, do you think we could get better at that in terms of, you know, when you've looked at some of the other societies that you've lived in? Yeah, I, I do. I, I do think that the Brits can hide and certainly you know, hide a little bit under, hide away from success a little bit. You wouldn't want to go all the way to being Aussie. <laughs> <that can be. laughs> We're going to get onto that in a minute. That's <laughs> a little, a little extreme, but I do think we could celebrate more about what we're really, what we're really good at. And, that was one of the things that happened at Coots was when I arrived, we were feeling a bit sorry for ourselves. And I, I got all our MDs into a room early on and said, come on, you've got slightly scuffed shoes and you're looking at you down at the, the floor. Come on, heads up, shoulders high. Just re- let's remember what, what we're Coots. We've got mm. the best brand in the world, got best client base, we've got a wonderful platform, we've got first quartile investment performance. Let's you know, get a pep in our step 
and let's think about the world positively. Mm, I mean, it, it seems to me that, that Australia and Oz does have a hinterland for you. I mean, I have an Australian mum. Most of my family are, are in Australia. And I kind of, we've spoken about it before. What do you think it's given you in terms of outlook and in terms of, I guess, that family story, which which you mentioned a little bit in our, in our lockdown list? So, you know, my, uh, we went up to Inverness a couple of weeks ago for a, for a week. and uh, That's not in Australia. <laughs> my, my mother, my mother reminded me that my grandfather's grandmother was from Inverness, and she got on one of the early boats, uh, not forced boats. She bought some land in South Australia, and and you think, golly, in 1830s, that was a pretty big deal for someone to go all the way across to Australia, and tough. So only the only the toughest survived, right? So I do think that probably in the genes, there, and my. My, we're all farmers, they're farmers, and then they did pretty well and got into hotels. But they're all pretty hardy, right? And they're used to really, you know, a tough background. So I do think I've got resilience, and I think that perhaps is to an extent in, inherited. The other thing in, in Australia, it's a young country, so it's it's never really wedded to any. Oh, we have to do this because we've done it, you know, two hundred years ago, hundred years ago. It's continuing to change and, and evolve. So I think this idea of being comfortable with change seeking change, wanting change, looking at change as something interesting rather than being scared of it also has a degree of Australianness. Mm. Be fair to the Kiwis, you know, Antipodean. <laughs> An Antipodean comfort with change. I mean, you, you mentioned in your lockdown list that a novel that you read in your early teens was, was My Brother Jack, which really picks up on, on the kind of World War One vets experience and that it kind of reminded you of your own family story in terms of your grandfather's experience. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I read My Brother Jack, it's an Aussie model novel in my early teens, and it's about this return vet from World War One and the difficulties those vets had in assimilating back into life, their families, brother. My own grandfather, luckily, came back from the Somme. He was injured, but he mm-hmm. got out and he never talked about it. He never talked about it. This was a big deal. Like World War One, 60,000 Aussies died in World War One. 40% of the male population signed up and 15% of them died. And in a way, not in a way, it did. It forged the nation because it came so soon after, after Federation in, in 1901. And so as a young guy, it was a book that, that made me realise how tough it must have been for my grandfather. And he only told me about it towards the end of his, of his life. It was horrific. Uh, but it was also about understanding how Australia came to, together as well. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting, all the points you say there, I mean, it kind of, I think a lot of it explains your own view of change and your own kind of, I guess, relationship with history and and actually sort of like that view of the future. You, you gave us, um, I suppose we're almost out of time, Peter, but our, your, your top tip, treat others as you'd expect to be treated yourself and talk with everyone as equals. Let's, let's finish there in terms of why you've given that as advice and, and what it means to you? So I said the family did pretty well on the land and so they uh, bought hotels. So I grew up um, in pubs, Aussie pubs. And back in those days, you still had a front bar, a saloon bar and a, a, lounge, a lounge bar. And, of course, my father put me to work pretty, uh, pretty early on cleaning ashtrays, which put me off smoking for life, which was, which was very good. Did, did, did it put you off the schooners? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, unfortunately. <laughs> But then I got to work in, in the front bar, the saloon and the lounge, as silly as that those divisions were. But you saw the different people that went uh, into those bars. And then my father impressed me that, that Boots was the guy that cleaned everything out. You needed to treat Boots 
as well as you treated the person that drank the most in the in the lounge bar. And I do think that I get on reasonably well with people naturally. Um, that's a big part of what I need to do as a business leader in life. And I think those early years were, were formulative in, in that. And that's so I think it's really important, particularly in a, in a society that can um, have classes in it elsewhere, that I think breaking through that class structure, uh, probably you'd expect that from an Aussie, I think is very important. What a great place to leave it. Peter Flavor, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you, Mike. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?